Hello and welcome to another episode of Political Agenda brought to you by New Narrative. My name is PJ Thumb and today we're interviewing Raihani who is a legal professional who is going to talk to us about Islam and abolition. But before that, I am wearing a blue and white batik shirt sitting in front of a big, big bookcase and my pronouns are he, him. Political Agenda is brought to you by New Narrative, which is a movement for democracy in Southeast Asia, and we are entirely 100% member-supported. So if you like what we do and if you enjoy this podcast, please do consider joining us as a member at newnarrative.com join or donating at newnarrative.com donate. Okay, so we're here to talk to Hani, who will be talking to us about Islam and abolition. But before we get to them, here is Sean Francis Han, my co-host and editor-in-chief of Wake Up Singapore. How are you doing today, Sean? Yeah, I'm doing really good. Uh, really excited to get into this episode. Uh, prison abolition, abolitionist politics is something that's seen a major resurgence in recent years, uh, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement. But we're here today to talk about Islam and abolition, which is, I think, extremely uh, interesting and far more localized. So I'm very, very interested to get into all of that. But before we do, hi, my name is Sean Francis. I'm wearing a grey t-shirt uh, and my pronouns are he, him. So, right, Hani Sarum, Hani, can you tell us more about yourself? What are you wearing and what are your pronouns? All right, hi, thanks for a lot for having me here. I am Raihani, you can refer to me as Hani. I'm wearing a white top and my pronouns are she, they. All right, so Raihani, let's just get right into it. Uh, can you tell us more about yourself? How did you get interested in activism, interested in abolitionist politics? Uh, what led you to this point? All right, so I actually uh, am starting out in like immigration law, specializing in the APAC region. But before this, I was working as a secret servant and I dealt with like criminal litigation for a few years. And I write um, for different publications on gender and labor politics with a focus on social justice issues. So these concern like marginalized genders. I recently like published a chapbook as well, which is a raw. Uh, poetry that explores the internal conflict of identities, racism, of love and grief, like in the time of upheaval and uh, precarity in the society. So um, that were actually written when I was living in London before having to move back to Singapore due to COVID as well. Um, I actually had to stop a lot of like my organizing work uh, that I have done in the past because I was a civil servant. Uh, yeah, so how I describe myself um, and what led me to like um, believing in um, abolition as well is because like I pretty much exist as like um, someone who is neurodivergent with ADHD and dyslexia like despite being a writer um, a queer Muslim who is also like proud of both my identities and they are not a paradox and I will like continue to identify as both so my late grandma and dad as well, um, they're indigenous to Pulau Skijan Palepau, which is also known as Lazarus Island, um, were considered as Orang Pulau, who sort of like got forcefully evicted off the island into mainland Singapore. And each time like my late grandma spoke to me about it, uh, like we're constantly reminded of like, you know, uh, indigenous dispossession, which uh, is inherently tied to racism in Singapore. Um, and I believe that it is such an important part of my identity that shaped my politics and shaped a lot of like my political inclination in terms of being sort of like a critique of this um, exploitative system that continue to plunder and colonize and devalue labor. So um, getting into uh, like my abolitionist politics as well, like I feel like my initial whole uh, political understanding, it sort of like has been framed around um, the brutal response uh, to 9-11, one that um, definitely like elicits more resentment and retaliatory violence as well, and it produces more and more instability. I, I mean, we're old enough to remember, you know, when uh, race-baiting Muslims was so easy after 9-11 and it was like so acceptable as well. There was a time where people could all easily assume um, that all terroristic acts like we see in the media and on TV, like it's just because of radical Islam. And when I was a young teen, like I remember having to debate um, not all Muslims are terrorists and like, uh, but all terrorists are Muslims in school. And I realized that it was simply racist. It was, um, I was being like subjected to a lot of microaggressions and my Muslim as actually had to like argue for that. So there was a lot of this righteous anger uh, with no place to go. 
and there were rampant like Islamophobia and stereotype about Muslims, about um, anti-Muslim sentiments and how Islam is always being portrayed as this big old like archaic violent religion and um, this religion sorry, uh, is riddled with a lot of like harsh ideas of punishment, um, of inhuman like punitivity that just scare people off the religion and for me um, as a uh, as an aboli- uh, abolitionist Muslim, like Islam is still one of my root uh, of my politics. Uh, the way I understand the world, definitely, I celebrate the uh, model and the ethos of the Prophet, his family, and the Imams. And dare I say, actually, uh, Islam is actually far more focused on restorative justice than punitive, which is pretty much like um, the topic of the conversation we're having today. Yeah, so so uh, the topic of conversation today really, I mean, for everybody out there, right, comes from this text or this this uh, article that you wrote that got translated into a uh, series of graphics uh, by Beyond the Hijab, which is titled, uh, Why I Believe uh, uh, Prison Abolition is an Islamic Issue, right? And uh, what I'm very, very, I mean, before we get into the, the intricacies and the intersections of Islam and prison abolition, um, maybe can you share with us what's your central thesis on abolition, on prison abolition? Because there have been many writers that have talked about prison abolition and each of them formulate it slightly differently, right? So I'm quite interested, how would you formulate it and what is your central thesis on abolition? All right, so I believe that... Um prison abolition is just this uh, radical idea that well, people are not supposed to be caged. It's wrong, it's egregious, it's inhumane, and people are allowed uh, the freedom um, to do what they want. And also, like, it's beneficial for us to firstly like uh, unpack what carcerality is. We have to move beyond like this carceral approach of punishment. So it is more towards like community healing. It's more towards um, like uh, people helping one another and believing that people can actually do better um, than what they have behaved in the past. And people are redeemable uh, in terms of that. And we can extend this to strangers as well. I mean, so now that we've kind of clarified, right, that your position on uh, prison abolition um, is is one that seeks, I think, maybe in, not in such a direct way to completely take away or abolish prisons, but to, you know, as you put it yourself, abolish the structures uh, that cause people to resort to crime in the first place. So now that we've kind of clarified that, I think the big question I want to ask here is, why choose an Islamic perspective to engage with the idea of prison abolition, why would a secular approach not suffice for you? Or what do you think can be brought to the table by bringing in Islam here? All right, so I, if I could just like briefly touch upon like the part of Islamic history um, in lieu of like this month being the month of Muharram, which is the first month of the Islamic calendar. So it is pretty apt because there was a very significant event that happened in 680 AD, which is the event of Karbala, this, uh, the city in Iraq where many Muslims, um, millions and millions of Muslims actually mourned the martyrdom of the grandson of the Prophet. And Karbala occurred because of like unjust systems um, uh, were being held by unjust rulers. So this was an abolition movement. Uh, it was, uh, as it, it continues to be an abolition movement. And abolition is just this... Um, act or action of abolishing a system, a practice, uh, an institution. So when the tyrant like uh, of the time, Yazid ibn Muawiyah, like, he came into power, systems of injustice were rife. So surveillance was the norm over those who disobeyed like, the family's rule. Slavery was the norm, even though Islam actually brought rules and regulations to humanize workers and to free slaves. Um, exploitation of like women's bodies was the norm even though Islam sort of like brought um, dignity to women's experience in this world so this form of like greed uh, I say if it fuels slavery it fuels like modern day slavery and a surveillance system it fuels objectification and dehumanization of women um, and Islamophobia yeah, and racism, but Islam actually, um, to me, as um, an abolitionist Muslim, it provides the roadmap for that um, holistic abolition. So uh, this spiritual leader at the time, like he fought so that a lot of like generations after them could benefit from um, their spiritual state and worldly practices. Definitely, the systems and societies um, that were protested, like um, against at Karbala in this city, Iraq, are the same systems and societies that are still present to this day, 
like they may have different facades but they still dominate um, and to me uh, it's very intertwined like Islamic abolition with anti-oppressive politics because mercy and humanity I believe it's just um, they are just like so central to Islam um, they are antithetical to like uh, ideas of tortures and punishments even though a lot of people have this perception oh Islam oh hudud law and stuff like that um, and it's just one because the Quran itself like it literally tells us to like pay zakat which entails just like um, donating a certain portion of your wealth for charitable causes to free people and we know a lot of like Muslims uh, who have been doing like abolition work since the 7th century freeing slaves was one uh, of the best ways to get free in the afterlife in terms of like um, the Muslims perspective of it and Islam does a lot of work in prisons to like liberate the hearts and minds as well in the hard time so um, with me, uh, definitely because we are all flawed human beings and apart from like having to deeply reckon with our own behavior and be accountable for the harm that we may have enacted as well like upon others, um, words and agreements, and we are also like responsible for other human beings and creations. So we are accountable for them too. And where we have like unjustly um, acted towards them, like subjecting people to like torture and violence, this all violate a very like uh, social religious responsibility and sensibility in Islam. So being acutely aware for me um, that human beings are flawed, it made me feel more compassionate. And I'm definitely not under the illusion that we cannot be like disappointed. You know, like I believe people can take on good actions leading to better behavior. Okay, so I, I let, let's let's back up a little bit and get sort of to the root of the issue, right? How did we get to a point, right, broadly speaking, not just in Singapore, but I think globally as well, and especially with the US, right, where these kinds of carceral logics uh, have become so widespread, right? Uh, is this, is, has this always been the norm, right, uh, in the early days of Islam, uh, in its founding years, right? Was this the case? You know, is, is, is the carceral logic something that's, that's universal and timeless or is it something that has become very entrenched and has been developed over the years, right? Basically, my question is, how did we get to this point? Okay, so it's always been um, our human, like we have a lot of like carceral impulses because uh, we believe that uh, the world is unjust and then we have, uh, we have no other ideas apart from like uh, one thing to like punish people uh, through like punitivity actions and it's always been the system like from the beginning of time and it's it's time for us to actually like um, unlearn a, a lot of this mindset and behavior and I guess like it's beneficial to just like uh, first unpack and break down like what carceral or like carcerality is which is uh, obviously this entails a lot of like punitive orientations and the ways um, our ideas and our thinking are influenced by practices of imprisonment and policing which were which have been practiced like, yeah, since the beginning of time as well, because of like prisons and policing, uh, they're so deeply infect our ideas and thinking about addressing harm that we truly think a lot of the times like conflict or being wrong uh, and accountability is uh, all like necessitates punishment. And for me, like um, litigating who deserve like mercy and um, yeah, who deserve mercy from like these very oppressive structures, this very inhumane um, prison system. It also necessitates the idea that some people actually remain, uh, deserve to remain caged. And it's something that I, yeah, I wrote about in the uh, Beyond the Hijab article, which is that when you actually treat people's freedom as a subject matter to be debated, like you not only accept the legitimacy of a very he uh, heavily like violent system, but you also like justify the dehumanization inherent within it. And globally, as you say, like we do cage our most marginalized people, you know, like the revolutionary um, and prison scholar Angela Davis as well. Uh, he, uh, she has mentioned that prison has become our response of our very first resort, you know, to so many of like society's problems from poverty, from homelessness to mental illness to like drug addiction. And overwhelmingly, it's poor people and minorities who are caged. 
And it's good that, um, yeah, in recent time, like many people understand there needs to be a change. And many of the time, like these changes being advocated are really exciting as well. But a lot of like uh, mainstream reforms assume that for the right people, uh, like whoever they are, like prisons actually work. Uh, cages actually keep us safe, which I find uh, to be quite a flaw in the uh, mainstream like prison reform because there's this idea that if we just change a bit here and there, prisons can become less violent. And if we just change a few things, like the correctional system uh, can indeed function as like a correctional system. So there was a lot of like this assumption um, that cages, yeah, like I said, like it can keep us safe. But reality is that many people coming out of uh, prisons, many people coming out of like these human cages are re-arrested within a few years as well. And it's not correctional. So you're not tackling like the root um, of the harm as well. It is a very vicious cycle. And the cycle also like functions. Um, the very same people are targeted like again and again and again. And policing is grounded in a lot of like racism and classism. So many of us have... Um, I say like at some point of time in our lives, like committed an act uh, that could be considered a crime, but it's marginalized people who are targeted, who are like police, who are arrested uh, for a lot of these acts. So policing is the gateway to prison. And so this um, systematic uh, racial targeting, it ensures um, a steady supply of like, people flowing into a prison. And another way that this functions is just that uh, many, many of like uh, people who commit the acts we, uh, we refer to as crimes as well. Like they are doing so like in the service of their own survival sometimes. So like, I don't know about everyone, but I think like um, shoplifting staple food from like cold storage because you don't have like any food, uh, because you're starving is not really like a major, major crime at all. Because um, end of the day, it is still a very socially constructed uh, category with like, not really an objective meaning behind, but a variation of like contested definitions and power relations. So um, Maria Kaba, who is this um, prison abolitionist uh, scholar and activist as well, like uh, she has said something which goes along uh, like not everything that's criminal is harmful and not everything that's harmful is criminal. So it is a socially constructed set of norms, you know, and uh, it defines like what society decides for itself that they were criminalized, created by people like years and years and years ago and um, decades ago, but we just like keep adding on to that criminal code. So it does nothing to address poverty or economic injustice. Um, actually, people, yeah, people coming out of prisons, like I said, um, uh, have very few like resources and even fewer like opportunities than they did going in. Plus, uh, they are emerging from prison with a felon label, you know, and this label like make them less uh, accessible to like secure jobs and like housing and education. And very often, like they return to like a lot of criminalized acts in order to survive again. So it is this cycle of uh, hurt people, hurt people in a way. Uh, but this isn't to like obfuscate uh, accountability or pathologize trauma in a way as an in like inevitable determinant of abuse, but because there are a lot of like survivors of violence uh, who don't and would never inflict like violence on others who won't commit what we sort of like categorize as crimes. But when we actually think um, about the people who are incarcerated for violent crimes, often we don't think about the fact that uh, most of them have been victims of violence in the past. So yeah, prison does not help people heal. It just continues this cycle of violence. If I can just add on, you know, I think um, the one of the examples you brought up about um, not everything that's harmful is criminal, that's criminal is harmful, is actually very important. It's a very important point for people to realize that we are governed by certain values and institutions and structures um, which um, affect how the system behaves, how we think, right? And I think the for me, the best example is always um, the fact that if you take something from your workplace, uh, even if something very small, right, could be as small as like a pen or something, your employer, the capitalist, has a right to call the police on you. But if your employer withholds your salary, which could be thousands of dollars, you don't have the right to call the police on them. You're sent to 
arbitration, you know, to you have to go through all these mechanisms to talk things through, to negotiate, right? So there is a very clear power imbalance in society and there are values deeply laden into the system um, which we need to interrogate and unpack. And the problem is um, when it comes to that, first of all, obviously in Singapore, we can't talk about things openly, right? We're not allowed to. This The system doesn't like debate. But second, we glorify colonialism. We talk about how colonialism was a good thing. But colonialism is fundamentally a violence, an act of violence on the population, on a both a native indigenous population, the dispossession of land, as you talked earlier, but also the importation of people as property, right? And we, we should also somehow stop I mean, we glorify, you know, especially the Chinese community, glorify our coolie ancestors. They were slaves. They were indentured laborers. They're no different from Bangladeshis, Filipinos, all the migrant workers who come in today and who are ruthlessly exploited, uh, exploited and sacrificed on the altar of capitalism, making money. But if we keep doing that, right, if we keep glorifying colonialism, our um, enslaved past, uh, then we also accept, we, we take on into ourselves this idea that it is okay, it is right to exercise violence on people. And to what end? Well, to make money. That's what, the, that's what Singapore was for. You know, that's why the British founded Singapore, to make money. Not to bring some sort of enlightenment for all the Raffles, you know, crazy ideas. And he had some ideas that were enlightened, but he was in Singapore like 30, 40 days total. Uh, overall, and for Raffles as well, Singapore was about making money. And so if we accept all of this and we say, hey, it's okay to, uh, to conduct violence on our own population in order to make money and we glorify that in the past, that then um, affects how we look at everything today and it creates the whole logic of incarceration for us. It creates a whole system where if you're not an economically productive person, if you deviate from that at all, the state has the right to exercise violence on you to put you back in line. And that is a very deep-seated reason for the whole situation that we're in today. Yeah, that's very interesting that you brought out. Definitely, it's about like power relations. It's about wealth. Um, like our current system, undoubtedly, like they make wealth and not safety the primary like determinant of whether someone is released while awaiting trial as well. Because like it's wild that there is also like a price tag to your freedom. And you know, like according to the criminal procedure code, like the amount of like every bond executed as well, it must be fixed with uh, due regard to the circumstances of the case as being um, sufficient to secure um, the attendance of the person arrested or like charged. So in other words, like the price of every single bond that like, it depends on like the likelihood of like the accused attending court for his or her trial, but people remain locked up a lot of the times as well, like because they can't afford bills sometimes. And that's criminalizing like poverty. And it's wrong, like bills are, bills are supposed to like exist to make sure like you uh, show up at your court date, right? Like, so why is it like, if you don't have money, like you can't get out, like it's yeah immoral, like it's uh, egregious as well. So yeah, a lot of like this, um, I would say horrible things happen in the world. Um, a few carried out by like profoundly like very disturbed people sometimes people would say like some irredeemably like so I always find it interesting um, though like the amount of um, energy uh, the media spends on a lot of these stories and how it shapes like our views and the very like necessity of prisons in a way to stop like all these bad people so uh, imagine if we also um, yeah like uh, in terms of like colonialism as well like imagine if we inducted those who sent us to like decades of long wars against like incredibly impoverished sectors of the globe um, that have been also like purposely underdeveloped by the international community uh, with the same vigor as we did these like sensational cases uh, we sometimes are exceptional in nature as well it's just amazing to me uh, with uh, like the ease definitely with we can actually put a face on a certain type of evil uh, and another we have like very difficult uh, like we have difficulty even like setting terms for debate as well definitely reflects the uh, terrible genius of you know like colonialism of carcerality supremacy um, 
capitalism and also like imperialism. So like one evil they can uh, so clearly put a face on and to justify the most brutal uh, solutions to. And the other is like mostly faceless and it always acts out of like total impunity. So if I can, you know, pick up on one point there, I think it's important for people to realize also how these issues are framed in Singapore, which is, you know, you, you, you talk about like these two faces and um, one habit or trend or the way that the PAP government thinks in Singapore is to frame things um, in terms of that impunity, right? And to terrify us that um, there are people who are either doing wrong and getting away with it or trying to break the system and they're there to stop it. But that means that when you think about um, the, these policies on a scale from, say, um, being creating policies which are, on the one hand, uh, more accessible to the public or more humane, right, uh, or easier to understand, um, the PAP never approaches that side of the spectrum. They go towards the, spec the side of the spectrum where policies are very harsh and complicated because their fear is always that if they're not on that side of it, if they're more towards the humane and accessible side, there's going to be loopholes that people fall through. There's going to be a crime committed that's going to make them the government look bad. There's going to be some sort of exploitation of the system. And that's part of the broader idea, right, that the PAP has, which is that if um, that it actually encouraged us to have, right? I think the Prime Minister said, if, if you're not eating other people's lunch, they're eating our lunch, right? And which is a terrible, terrible idea, the idea that we can't all work together in a community. But the, the broader concept is someone is always trying to screw over the system. And in Singapore, there's this idea, if you're, you're not screwing over the system or screwing over other people, you're the one getting screwed over. Well, you know, that's something like that, right, which we call kiasuism, actually is very insidious because you look at the broader policies and that means that policies are always written so that they don't want, they want people not to screw them over. So if you look at CPF, they make it more and more complicated so you can't exploit it. But that means people who honestly just want their pension money for whatever reason can't access it. You look at housing, right, very complicated, over the years, what became, you know, housing for the people has now become all these different schemes. You look at healthcare, right? All these different schemes so that what used to be, we used to have universal, virtually free healthcare. Now it's all these subsidies, schemes, everything very complicated. But then again, with all our laws, and again, you come back to abolition, you know, it's the same thing. You make everything so complicated and you make it difficult to access. And that means that a lot of people then end up getting screwed over by the system because they don't have the ability or the time or the energy to navigate all the different aspects of the law. But instead, what you have is a law written to entrap uh, and, and narrow and close down all these loopholes, and it becomes uh, inhumane almost, right? Or the same thing about election law. They're so afraid of fraud that the, they narrow the right to vote we don't even actually technically have the right to vote, but they narrow the vote to as few people as possible to ensure that there's no fraud. When there's been virtually no instance of fraud at all in our entire electoral history, but they write the law so that it's all the way over to this avoid fraud side rather than trying to guarantee as much access and the universal right to vote, you know, to all Singaporeans. So this is another way of looking and thinking about how we write laws, how we create policies that I, did, I think people don't realize it. And that's why when you talk about abolition, we talk about any law, the, one of the first responses, knee-jerk almost, I get is, oh, but then people are going to exploit it, you know, if you don't have this harsh law, right, people are going to exploit it. If you don't do this, that, that, if you don't make the law so tough, if you don't create punishments which are really tough, people will exploit it without even thinking about the sheer cost of this attitude and the fact that there's a lot of innocent people, right, who are going to be caught up in it because of the sheer complexity and weight of the law. Yeah, I, I really love that point, right, that carcerality 
uh, or the carceral logics that we live with um, are entrenched with many, uh, many, many other different logics, right? Logics of screwing people over and getting screwed over. So I really, really love that point. But I, I want to kind of bring in and jump off of that point, right? And kind of bring in a very common uh, response to, to abolition politics, right? And so I'm thinking, you know, from the perspective of somebody in the Facebook comments, right, writing on Versal books or Jacobin or something like that, on an article about abolition, and they'll say, you know, I let's say I can get behind the idea that we need to let go of the carceral logics, we need to let go of the kiasuisms, right, and we need to come up with new ideas on how to make the prison uh, system less brutal, less violent, right. But you know, then they'll add in, but. Where do we put the rapists and murderers? Where do the Jeffrey Dahmers and Jack the Rippers go, right? And isn't it okay if we enforce, you know, strong rule of law in order to keep us safe from these irredeemable psychopaths? What do you say to that? Yeah, so there's always, always like this massive assumption that, um, yeah, most mass murderers or those who like committed a lot of like extreme violence are the ones in prisons, are the ones who locked up. But that is actually not the case because um, in Singapore, for instance, if we look at like um, rape cases as well, uh, only about like a little over 13% um, led to conviction and rape cases even are reportedly up by approximately like 75% since the past few years. And a lot of people don't go to jail for it. They are like, yeah, wandering among us, living among us. And many people think that uh, also like sexual assault, which is considered as this very monstrous act, um, is something abolitionists haven't worked out when it's actually very central to abolitionist work and theorizing, especially we know that it is um, a simultaneous side of um, anti-colonial, anti-racism, anti-gender like, essentialist and queer liberation as well practiced by survivors. And we know as well, like rape is something um, that's massively underreported because uh, a lot of like survivors have to go through like this uh, traumatization when they report to the police. So a lot of people who go, even even the very little people who like got convicted for it, like they go out and sometimes they committed the same offense as well. And I'm also saying this um, as a survivor as well. Like I believe um, abolition is a fragile trust in a sense that vested in the world by survivors who actually want and we need like and demand that harm be met with community care rather than very harsh punishments in a sense that um, it is definitely a lot of things you know but easy is not one of them um, no one tells you that abolition sometimes can be a very lonely fight um, the very important thing that we have to know is that uh, we cannot just like force upon solutions especially for survivors you know and when we look back, like, um, I would say personally, like, touching a bit on, like, my childhood. I don't know about you, uh, but, like, sometimes uh, when I was a kid, like, I, if I did something wrong or if I misbehave for some time and the guardian would just say, hey, stop doing that. Like, I'll just call the police. The police is going to catch you if you misbehave. So there's just a lot of, like, carceral mindset that has been planted to us from a very, like, such an early age. And that's why, like, these punitive logics of um, capitalism uh, it has infiltrated like even our emotional landscape um, and it pushes us towards like wanting to harm in response to being harmed. That's why this continues the cycle and that's why a lot of people also uh, come up with, uh, yeah, like where do these murderers, uh, where do these like violent criminals go? But if they are more sort of like uh, they have accessible uh, accessibility to like a lot of resources some people can get away with a lot of crimes so a lot of like rich people um, uh, who have uh, like the uh, social who have like a high social class uh, and status like they have a lot of this um, get away in terms of uh, crime and crim uh, like criminal acts and stuff so we can actually like think about uh, accountability and uh, transformative justice as well like without re relying on uh, punishment which only recreates a lot of these structures of oppression so um, I would say like when we actually like challenge um, racism when we challenge like patriarchy they, these are all like the key to the creation of like the society where prisons are simply sometimes can be unnecessary because we have a lot of like communities uh, be able to like bring about justice when 
harm is done. And I would just, um, yeah, I would just like to bring out like something um, Maria Kakba actually say as well, like um, everything worthwhile is done with other people as well. And I think that abolition sounds like a pipe dream because like it is demanding like a really fundamental restructuring of society away from like the racially consumptive uh, and punitive. And that is very hard. You know, like there may be, maybe there are like clearer paths or uh, plans on some fronts, but not on some others, because that is the nature of the project. That is the nature of the abolitionist project. People are offering a lot of like uh, analytical frameworks as well and plans and strategy, strategies and some, uh, some things like they don't have like a singular answer. So the ease of like offering that answer is not like to the point and that's why people uh, choose to like refute it and they don't want that work. Um, they don't want, they just want like the answer and they want like the familiarity of structure. So that is why um, this project is a little uh, antithetical, I'd say, to like prefect politics. And frankly, that's what like makes it so ambitious uh, and exciting, but it's also terrifying because uh, an anti-carceral approach in return, it sort of like, uh, tells you and asks you to free yourself from this thinking, to interrogate your cultural impulses, and to uh, even to those who have like violated the more standard parts of your existence. And I definitely can see like the um, I would say like fuzzy ages uh, of a world without prison bars, one where minoritized people like uh, they don't carry the burden of incarceration. So I don't think I'm alone in this for sure. Like uh, many, uh, I would say like, uh, even like queer bisexual women who have survived like sexual assault, physical violence, uh, stalking by like uh, a partner or a lot of the combination of this, like many uh, people believe that a lot of, uh, a lot of like people deserve to heal in the face of this sort of like inescapable cycle of state-sponsored violence. We choose mediation, like we choose our communities and a different path um, further than the one that's always available. And many of the most like uh, adamant um, abolitionists, I say, also are survivors of violence. And they, uh, when I speak to a lot of these people as well, they uh, insistently like refuse uh, on understanding justice beyond the punitive logics of the carceral state because uh, even convictions are tested constantly because the state does not uh, the state does not produce justice. And one of the most important thing, um, like I've mentioned earlier as well, in responding to such cases, like in terms of even sexual assault, is to never judge or impose solutions ever especially towards a survivor. And then you have also like people using uh, like the existence of pedophiles, for instance, right? Like as their gotcha on like abolition, as if like there weren't so many youths uh, globally being kept in adult jails and prisons. Um, they are made to be more extra vulnerable to the predatory uh, like violence people claim to care about. So this shows some of this, like, yeah, the people commenting on like Facebook and stuff, like they don't actually care about the victims of uh, childhood sexual assault. They just love to use the horror spectacle that's made for their plan uh, to uphold the system that also victimizes thousands and thousands of children every day. So prisons breed a lot of abuse culture. It, uh, they also like create worse conditions for survivors when abusers actually get out. So what happens then? if they ever went, most don't. Like they need mental health professionals as well, um, not the carceral state because you're not tackling the issue. The crime is gonna uh, be uh, committed again and again because of that. And if we truly want to reduce or even end like this gender-based violence, you know, like putting a few uh, perpetrators in prison does little, we have to hold the individual like perpetrator like accountable as well. We have to uh, go through like their um, transformation or to the most important thing is like to meet the needs of the survivors, to meet the needs of the people who are harmed by these individuals. And I just don't think, and many people don't think um, that prisons can ad address like this gender-based violence since um, prisons are themselves like the central organizers of gender-based violence. You know, like my status, I'd say like as a survivor of intimate uh, violation, uh, it placed me firmly sometimes like in the paradox of abolition, you fighting for the freedom of someone who had trapped me from like a singular most monstrous act. And also mentioned this uh, earlier as well, like um, 
too often we sort of like, yeah, as in truncate uh, what is the abolitionist response to this very uh, uh, monstrous crime or like situation. These are all like created by current material conditions. You know, sometimes we don't have like a singular way, like we can't, but we have to uh, transform these conditions that produce these situations in the first place, like the framing I just mentioned earlier on. And this is uh, a good time to just like bring about like what uh, Ms. Ruth Wilson Gilmore has said, like abolition means not just the closing of prisons, but the presence instead of uh, vital systems that support um, that many communities lack. And abolition will demand that we actually believe in safety when it's been taken from us. It asks us to sort of like build the bridges, you know, out of our own isolation. And most of all, um, it definitely uh, requires that we um, have faith and trust that something or anything lives on the other side of that pain. And um, if I could bring about like some maybe like lived experience as well, uh, having worked in the criminal justice system for a few years, I can say that sometimes I do believe that an abolitionist society would probably prevent like some of these cases uh, litigated like from ever reaching to that point because carcerality and capitalism fuel a lot of them, uh, which can only be saved through the um, restoration of human, social and economic relations, which are not destructive uh, to all forms of life. You know, uh, I know this is not something that everyone uh, is very keen to believe in because it can sound quite radical, but we are actually talking about the very dual project. Like on the one hand, yes, to dismantle like death-making institutions such as policing and prisons uh, and creating life-affirming ones. So putting uh, resources and investing in things that do actually keep people safe, sort of housing, like healthcare, schooling, all kinds of things like living wages so people don't actually resort in, uh, to crime. And those types of investments are what keep people safe. And yeah, so with this, a lot of like abolitionist thinking as well, um, fuel, uh, yeah, is very relevant with the Black Lives Matter movement and the killing of uh, George Floyd by the Minneapolis cops. Like it was another horrific and very needless death. You know, it's another um, unarmed black man killed by police and recorded for all the world to see. It was also, uh, a spectacle of violence um, at the hands of the state that we witness. And we've seen this before, like literally we've seen it, like um, a lot of like marginalized people, especially like black men being choked uh, by police in broad daylight, the uprisings like against the carceral state, uh, police and prisons and pictures that prove that torture uh, is going on in these uh, institutions of criminal punishment, you know, and we see the police are most likely uh, not held accountable, they don't get fired, they don't get charged. And the very few cases where they do get charged, like it's extremely rare for them to be convicted. So, so I want to kind of bring it back to Singapore a little bit, right? And, and even preempt some of the comments that I kind of foresee coming out, right? Um, so I, 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 I'm sort of preempting a, a response here, right? What if, what if someone were to say, you know, that's, that's America, Right in Singapore, we have we have strong carceral system. We have strong uh, law and order. Right, uh, maybe it's a bit harsh, but it works. We've got low crime rate. People are safe, uh, and in the famous words of our ministers, you know, you can walk on the street at night, completely fine. Uh, you know, which you can't say about somewhere like New York. Right. So, what would you say uh, to to a response like that? Okay, so in the context of Singapore, you know, we have really, really great initiatives like Transformative Justice Collective of Singapore who are advocating for like the abolition of the death penalty. And we know like uh, coming back to the question uh, how Malays and Indians are disproportionately overrepresented in uh, prisons and they are also very less likely to achieve reintegration as compared to the Chinese counterparts. Recently, there was a report uh, which is very... Yeah, 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 beneficial to like bring forth as well like how 17 ethnic Malay individuals are facing the death penalty in Singapore and they actually have brought forth a judicial review to the courts on the basis that the attorney, uh, attorney general's chambers have acted arbitrarily and in a very discriminatory manner for imposing the death penalty on them because of their race. Uh, there was 
this strong emphasis on systemic discrimination, which is a, an issue in Singapore as well. And you can't deny that systemic discrimination isn't an issue in Singapore because if you do deny that, then um, I don't think like we're living in the same country sometimes. Like this is why I believe that uh, prison is a racialized space where uh, human rights, uh, especially for marginalized people and humanity are suspended. So to have this racialized space is also to have uh, a form of containment that subordinates racial minorities in the context of Singapore, like Malays and Indians, and the ways like said minorities sort of cope and resist as well as we see from the report um, with spatial containment. You always, yeah, you always, always have to have a racial politics when it comes to dismantling tools of oppressions, regardless if you're living in Singapore, regardless if you're living like um, other places of beyond Singapore as well. Like nobody is, um, I don't know, demanding you to choose a struggle by supporting uh, like marginalized people's liberation because abolition itself, like it's fighting against violence uh, and the violence of capitalism is not singular. And we have even in Singapore, to move uh, beyond the heavy, heavy reliance of a very racialized and punitive justice system that we have now. Um, there was also this uh, really good um, informative and comprehensive report on um, National University of Singapore Malay Studies, alumnus Siti Hazira Muhammad paper on how uh, Malay youth delinquency as well is portrayed in Singapore media through television shows like uh, Anak Metropolitan. And I actually grew up watching this show. So it pro portrays like social and personal problems of Malay teens, which led them to criminal behavior. A lot of the times people associate like uh, drug issues with Malays. You know, like it's, uh, it, uh, this show actually explores um, their upbringing, their peer group and socioeconomic background, um, how they actually play an important role in shaping the choices that they make. So there was this heavy um, association of Malay youths with drug addiction, um, with broken families and delinquency. Um, it has been a feature of Singapore politics as well since uh, yeah, it's emerging as an independent nation. Um, there's this narrative uh, has been much yeah, dominated and sustained even by like a lot of political elites, a lot of scholars. Um, it perpetuates this stereotype that um, ethnic Malays um, that minority, yeah, Malays in this country, they lack like socioeconomically as an outcome of their own inept like cultural values and attitudes when it, when they also are victims of like state abandonment. You know, they're not being given, uh, they've not been given resources for them to actually get out of this um, very oppressive like conditions and problems such as homelessness of uh, teenage pregnancy, of like drug addiction and low-income families as well. Um, youth delinquency are frequently referred to and been widely framed as the Malay problem. Or we say like Masalah Melayu, you know, um, Dr. It? Yeah, Dr. Lily Zubaidah Rahim, I think. Uh, yeah, she has argued that beyond purely like cultural endorsements of multiculturalism, the construct of race in Singapore, it has posed challenges to minorities on an institutional level and has rendered like the idea of like, yeah, meritocracy a very questionable one for sure. So um, the government's like uh, aversion towards like call in the 1970s or the 1980s by Malay elites and key community leaders to uplift the Malay community in terms of um, educational attainment has actually di like directly disadvantaged the Malay minorities. So the position of like the Malays and their weak cultural values, uh, like our undesirable attitude are then pinpointed as the source of our own shortcomings and as the reason like, behind their uh, persistent entrenchment within the poverty cycle as well. Um, so. Um, yeah, the alumnus like Siti Hazira has said something, uh, yeah, very important as well, like in placing the blame for their current condition on the Malays themselves, like this also like negates the uh, possibilities of structural inequalities as a possible factor uh, in the lives of Malays who are deemed as dysfunctional. So such narratives you know, um, when they're being brought upon in a very um, national audience into the public sphere, 
um, even in yeah even in national national day rally speeches and other avenues of communication like through which the uh, government relays uh, to its people and they just you know like how uh, even our prime minister as well like Lee Nong he has said something um, I'm not sure if it's like in 20, 2005 or 2009 uh, but he said something that uh, how it has continuously and consistently raised the specter of uh, problematic and later dysfunctional young Malay families as a factor that is uh, hindering the uh, Malay community from progressing in uh, tandem with other like communities as well. So I'd say a lot of the issues in Singapore, uh, we have to also take an internationalist approach towards uh, abolition. We have to also... Um, it can't say, oh, uh, what hap- what's happening in like America, it doesn't affect us at all. But it's also a form of like collective freedom and liberation that you have to care about, you know, like Black Lives Matter, you still have to care about as well in the context of Singapore. So I... Um, yeah, and if I can you- add, right, on top of race blaming, right, on top of the whole logic and framing that I talk, the Gyasuism, right, where, mm-hmm. oh, what happens if one person it, who, you know, conducts a crime is not caught, right? That whole spectrum I talked about earlier between accessibility and and sort of locking things down to avoid loopholes. There's also a false dichotomy here, right? So someone, John, who writes, you know, what if, what if, what if, they're assuming that safety and human rights are mutually exclusive, that safety and caring and building a society which cares for everyone, which treats all of us with, with, with you know, mutual respect, with trust, with decency, these are mutually exclusive. They're not, right? And we see very interesting uh, attempts all around the world um, to build societies which are both safe and which also protect human rights and have mechanisms where we can talk about very difficult issues, where we can talk about discrimination on on the basis of race or gender, where we can try and protect the rights, even the rights of prisoners, because prisoners, everyone deserves human rights and deserves the basic uh, human decency, right? And we can see that uh, clearly in the you know thriving human rights uh, communities and attempts to build better societies in places like Taiwan or Japan or South Korea, you know it's not even Western, right? We have these things nearby in society, some of which are very similar to us. So th- this false dichotomy, I think, is is a is a huge problem, and I would turn it around and say I think the the bigger problem is also people, you know, and and I I don't want to blame everyone, but I think there's a lot of people who are um, who want easy answers. And the, building an advanced civilization, an advanced society is not easy. You know, writing a law and just saying, oh, everyone falls under that law and no exceptions, right? That means you don't have to take responsibility. And actually, that's also part of it. You, you, you know, people are afraid of doing the hard work, but they also don't want to take responsibility. And it's easier to simply throw that responsibility to a harsh, unyielding government and just saying, oh, the law is the law, the law is there. If you do the crime, you've got to do the time, you know. And these are very lazy ways of looking at our individual and collective responsibility to our society. And if we want better societies, which are actually sophisticated and can treat all of us with the dignity and respect while recognizing that we're all different, we all need to work for that. But that is very difficult. And I think people are afraid. They're tired. They're frustrated. You know, we're in a world where we're ground down by capitalism. And so I don't want to say people are lazy, but I want to, I, I will say that because of the circumstances around us, grinding us down, on top of capitalism, we now have a pandemic, we have climate crisis, you know, people are exhausted. And to think of like, on top of that, I got to put in the work to build a better society. I can understand a lot of people just just like, you know what, forget everyone else. I mean, this for myself, screw it, you know. <laughs> but it's we're not going to advance as, a, as humanity that way. We're going to go back to the way of the, the caveman, which is, you know, who have, might makes right, which is, which... 
and 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 I and I just want to echo and and sort of summarize uh, uh, Hani's point because I think it's extremely beautiful that when people say there's nothing wrong with carcerality because it, you know look at Singapore it's so safe right and I think what Hani did there right in her very thorough answer is remind us safe for whom right. It's not safe for the minorities. It's not safe for the the teens uh, who are a little bit brown. I can attest to this, right? Where the police come and spot check you. It's not. It's not safe for 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 people who are in these very precarious positions, exposed to very precarious positions, where they have to choose survival and comfort or going to jail. So I really, really love that point. Um, uh, and I, you know, I I think that that makes a very very strong case. Uh, for abolition in Singapore, uh, but make but beyond just making the case, how do we begin to move toward abolition in Singapore? How can we begin imagining what abolition would look like in Singapore? Right, we seem very far away from it. I have to admit, right? Uh, PJ's been through it. I've been through it. Every time, you know, we get investigated. Um, Everybody in the comments is like, go to jail, lock them up, life imprisonment, right? We are really in love with, with the police and jail for some reason. How do we begin to move toward abolition in Singapore? Right, so it is definitely uh, what you say. We are so far removed uh, from like a lot of like the realities of being uh, like an abolitionist society, definitely because uh, how we are going to start. Um, a lot of work has to be done with our own self as well, like our cultural impulses, like I've mentioned earlier on. But also, um, regardless, you know, like um, whether you want to get rid of prisons or simply make them less violent, uh, if that's ever possible, uh, an immediate humanitarian demand um, that we can make, I'd say, obviously, through the abolition of the death penalty. Uh, to decarcerate people who are locked up for like non-violent offences simply because they made certain choices they had to in order to survive uh, the way they know that they can. Uh, so when there's less incarcerated people, there's also less opportunities for people to be brutalised by the state. Um, yeah, the idea, I would say, is just like to gain this traction towards these voices, um, towards incarcerated people who are subjected to the most uh, egregious state conditions, um, towards the marginalization of people who are su yeah, subjected to all of this, and to support them towards better conditions. Even when these incarcerated, uh, incarcerated people, sorry, uh, who comes out of prison, um, they are not being supported with the right resources. And some people um, just sort of like dismiss a lot of like their needs and concerns as well. Um, it can also like with through, through all of this questioning and interrogating of ourselves and our own logical um, as in cultural punishment ideas that we have uh, to respond harm with harm. It can also ask us, uh, help us, sorry, to ask better questions in the future instead of like, oh, do prisons keep us safe? So that is how I would foresee in a way. And I know like we have such a long way to go, but decarceration uh, is important as well. Mm. So for those viewers out there um, who are interested in abolitionism, abolitionism in Singapore, right? What are some books or texts or resources that you can point them to? And also for those who are interested, how can we get involved? How can we sort of make our voices heard or aid the cause here? Alright, so there are a lot of like uh, resources on abolition. A very good start would be uh, by uh, through reading the works of Angela Davis as well, uh, Prisons uh, Absolute. Um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore has a lot of like abolitionist work that comes out. Uh, but if people want to see uh, like uh, comprehensive uh, resources as well, there's um, this <coughs> there's this website. It's called like criticalresistance.org/resources. It lays out. Um, the stuff that you can actually read and get involved with uh, when you want to start um, thinking about abolition. So there's also a, uh, a recent book that came out uh, by Maria Kappa. It says, um, we do this till we free us, which is a very uh, important book as well. And there are collectives in Singapore, uh, like uh, we've mentioned, like Transformative Justice Singapore, who uh, advocates for the uh, death, uh, for the abolition of the death penalty, can start with that. And also to um, sort of like, um, is it to sort of like bring forth a lot of like compassion uh, towards other human beings? Um, that is also um, something that I find um, 
I, I would not say funny, but like interesting because some would say uh, all of this, like, oh, prison abolition, it's so radical, like, it's so utopian, like, uh, why are you, like, believing in this? Like, it's not going to happen in Singapore, it's not going to happen everywhere else. Uh, people say these, these are, like, radical politics, but they also come from, like, a very vulnerable place as well. One that is like rooted in love, in empathy, in compassion towards other humans. Things are not okay right now, and it haven't been okay. It hasn't been okay, and many of us just want like people to be okay, and that can be radical to some as well. And people who do advocate for like prison abolition, I've seen um, a lot of people also um, like hate on them a lot because um, they are just like some annoying contrarian who just shit talks for the sake of it, but it's not. All right, so on that note, honey, um, I just have one, one last question for you, right? And it's a question that we ask all of our guests. Basically, what is your theory of change, right? On a personal note, how do you think change can happen? How do you think it should happen? How do you think it would happen or will happen in the future? What is your take on the things that you believe that you can do in your own way to make change happen? Okay, so to me, um, of course, abolition is a theory of change reflecting a holistic commitment to build a more just world for everyone. So it's a theory of social life, as uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore puts it. We sort of, uh, we found this in approach, um, as in we found in this approach also, it has informed my theory of change uh, during the pandemic, like especially when people face a lot of structural barriers, um, helping the most vulnerable people uh, requires a lot of bold changes and it's not just like tweaks at the margin. So more people should be interrogating, more people should be questioning, uh, more people should be like dismantling our ideas of uh, punishment as an approach to harm and we have to be uh, accountable a lot for our actions as well and also, I would say, uh, I would bring back to like my previous point because ultimately, regardless uh, of what we see, uh, how, as in how we view state power, you know, if we want to make prisons less um, violent and stuff like that, um, decastration is how I see uh, we as a society move forward. So um, it is, to me, an immediate humanitarian demand as well. So we can't just keep uh, people locked up in all of these uh, in all of these cages uh, with inhumane conditions and also uh, very secluded from the rest of the world sometimes. So on that note, Hani, I want to thank you so much for coming onto the show and explaining to us and really exposing the issue uh, of abolition, uh, not just from an Islamic perspective, but also situating it in Singapore, providing that relevance for all of us. So thank you so much for coming onto this show. Thank you so much, PJ, for having me. It's been amazing, yeah. Thank you so much for having me as well. Yes, thank you, honey. Really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you for coming on the show. Uh, thank you, Sean, for, as always, excellent co-hosting and questions. And thank you to you, our listener or viewer, if you're watching this on YouTube, for joining us today. As always, if you've enjoyed this, please do join New Narrative as a member. We desperately need your support. You can go to newnarrative.com slash join to join or newnarrative.com slash donate to donate. Thank you very much and see you next time.